It's the Maxwell Institute podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. In a new book called Kingdom of Nauvoo, historian Benjamin E. Park argues that the story of the Latter-day Saints is essential to understanding the bigger story of early American history. Park writes, the question Mormons posed to the young American nation was not just about the boundaries of religious liberty, it concerned the very limits of democracy. And with the Mormons, the process of democracy broke down. Dr. Park visited the Maxwell Institute earlier this year to talk about his new book and about the Latter-day Saints and their kingdom on the Mississippi. His guest lecture is available now on the Institute's YouTube channel. Questions and comments about this and other interviews can be sent to me at mipodcast at byu.edu. Benjamin E. Park joins us today. Welcome to the Maxwell Institute podcast again. Absolutely thrilled to be here, Blair. Well, it's good to have you. This time we're talking about your new book, Kingdom of Nauvoo, The Rise and Fall of a Religious Empire on the American Frontier, a book which came out this week. By the time people hear the episode, they should have already heard about it. Hopefully. It'll be in everyone's home, correct? Yeah, everyone will already have a copy by the time the episode comes out. Uh, But you're on a pretty busy tour right now. You're talking to a lot of different audiences Before we dig into the book itself, I just wanted to quickly ask what that process is like preparing to talk with a lot of different types of people on a lot of different levels about a scholarly book. Well, first of all, it's just thrilling to have a rapt audience that has to listen to what I'm saying. Uh, as, as a parent and as a teacher, I, I often have people who have to listen to me not by their own choice. So it's <laughs> quite exciting that people are choosing to come hear me. But there is a, an expectation for me to try to be informative, entertaining, because I know Nauvoo matters to people. People really love Nauvoo. They love its spiritual legacies. They think it has abundant meaning. And I want to be able to reach those people and show them that, one, I'm taking care with a story that means a lot to them. And two, that there's still some layers of Nauvoo's meaning that can still be unpacked. Yeah, let's talk about Nauvoo the Beautiful. I visited there when I was 16 years old. That's when I went. So the temple hadn't been rebuilt. I still remember seeing the grass and like this brick on the ground where I believe the old baptismal font was. Now it's obviously it's been transformed into a full working temple there, the visitor center. There are all sorts of recreated buildings, a beautiful place to see historical reconstructions of buildings and 19th century lifeways and stuff. But you you talk about in your book's prologue that faithful Latter-day Saints see this geography as a monument to their spiritual ancestors, and then outsiders, if they see it at all, might see it as a historical oddity. Mm-hmm. So how does a historian begin to tackle a place that has such a complicated archaeology of its history? Yeah, it's a great question, Blair. For me, I have, I'm trying to reach both those audiences and, and share them something new and something relevant. And part of that is, in both those cases, either the LDS people who were, love Nauvoo and believe it has spiritual meaning, they often misunderstand how Nauvoo relates to the broader culture, that it has a broader significance, that there are cultural symmetries with America during the time, that Nauvoo is not just an LDS story, but it's an American story. And to outside people who are interested, critics or sympathetic observers, uh, they sometimes think that Nauvoo is just weird. It's just crazy. They they don't want to understand. That's just a, a odd tale that, uh, you know, happened on the frontier of society and then everyone wisened up. But I try to show them that no, Nauvoo is their story too. Nauvoo is a, it does not just belong to the LDS. It does not just belong to the critics. It belongs to American history because it's an important moment in the nation's past. And it tells us a lot about the lessons of some of America's most important principles, including religious liberty and democracy. And its importance can be seen in the fact that it has a fairly rich tradition of literature about it. People 
people have been writing about Nauvoo for a really long time. And your book is the latest treatment. And, and you say, as I think any new book will, and books after yours will probably say the same thing, that existing historical treatments of Nauvoo have some serious limits. So I just wondered at the top here what kind of things you had in mind. And please name names. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say that there has been a lot of excellent work on Nauvoo over the years. But it might surprise people to think that the most recent book that covers the entirety of Nauvoo, written for a general audience, not just believing Latter-day Saints, was 50 years ago Hmm. with Robert Flanders' Kingdom of Nauvoo, still a great classic. That book got so much right about Nauvoo, but the author, Robert Flanders, also had very limited access to archival sources that are still available in abundance to scholars today. So there's a lot to be updated on that story. More recently, within the LDS tradition, there are lots of phenomenal, exhaustive treatments of Nauvoo. Glenn Leonard's General Survey of Nauvoo, A People of Place of Peace and a People of Promise, I think is the title, a wonderful social history that is devotedly meant to build the faith in Latter-day Saints about Nauvoo. Now, that's a wonderful project, but I also wanted to take Nauvoo and place it in its broader context, which is something that a lot of these LDS books on Nauvoo does. Because as I mentioned, Nauvoo does not just have lessons to those who are part of the LDS institution. It has lessons to everyone who is interested in American religious history and democratic rule. And before we dig into those lessons, I wanted to mention that in your book's introduction, you start everything off by describing this wonderful scene, this downpour of rain and a gathering of Latter-day Saint leaders in April 1844. You take us right into the heart of the history of Nauvoo here. Democracy has seen failed uh, the Latter-day Saints, and they're going to try to form a new constitution here. And you're basing your study on detailed minutes that you say were restricted from believers and historians alike for 172 years. That's from your book, despite all the rumors around what these papers might contain. And they were finally released in 2016. And you credit the release of those documents as one of the things that made your book possible. Let's think about those records for a minute. The Council of 50 records have long had this legend of mythic proportions among Mormon scholars and LDS readers because they're almost the the sacred plates of the (laughs) scholarly record, and we've never had access to them. They're seen as too controversial, too radical. They, They show the saints that they're most bitter against the American nation and the constitutional tradition, and that just seems so discordant with how Latter-day Saints feel today because we're very patriotic. We try to maintain good relations. And so these minutes were long restricted. And But they've been part of a series of very increasingly generous decisions made by church leaders in Salt Lake to grant more access to these sources, partly uh, due to the work of the Joseph Smith Papers Project, who, as they are trying to recover the life and documents of Joseph Smith in the Nauvoo era, they need access to these sources to get the bigger picture. Once they get access to these bigger sources, they're able to make a a claim on why these sources are, are important, and eventually the church agrees and they get published. So when the Council of 50 records were announced, I think they were first announced in a couple of years before 2016, and then they were published in 2016. And that just sent shockwaves. Yeah, didn't they announce the Mormon History Association meeting in San Antonio? Isn't that That what? sounds familiar. I yeah. don't remember the specifics. I remember seeing that. like a slide yeah. of a document from them, and the, the room just buzzed. It was incredible. And I had long thought that I'd want to write something about Nauvoo at some point in my career. But as soon as those Council of 15 Minutes were released, I realized, you know what? That's the prompting I need. It is time for me to dig in and, and figure out 
what they're about. I think your background has helped with that, too, because people that have listened to the podcast for a long time will be familiar with your previous episode, which was about American nationalisms right. and, and this whole question of how democracy is supposed to work right. in such a, a diverse location. And as a historian, one of our primary jobs is to place what can otherwise seem as controversial and weird things in context so that they make sense. The Council of 50 Minutes can seem weird to a lot of people. Because it seems like they're trying to build a government. Like, yeah, why exactly. would anybody want Replacing this? all yeah. the world nations and yeah. replacing the American Constitution. And so one way of viewing my book, Kingdom Nauvoo, is I'm trying to give the lead up to and context for those Council of 50 Minutes to make sense of those documents that otherwise might seem a bit kooky. So what we're going to see, I hope, throughout the course of the interview and people that read the book is that Nauvoo embodies many of the contradictions and tensions that were part of a young American nation, a nation trying to figure out what it was going to be. And Latter-day Saints, and sometimes we'll refer to them as Mormons, this is a historical term, were radical in that setting. And the American experiment itself was tenuous. So take us to Nauvoo, Ben, at that time, the way that Mormons even arrived there to begin with, and the way that they arrived there, and the reasons that they arrived there, would have repercussions for what ended up happening there. Very much so. When the saints arrived in Illinois, they were religious refugees. They had just been forced out by a state-sanctioned mob, an extermination order signed by a governor that said that they are enemies of the state and must be treated as a nuisance and either exterminated or driven from the state. So they moved to Illinois. And by that time, they believed that the traditional democratic system had failed them. That in a nation that's run by majoritarian rule, if the mob gets mad at you, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. So when they establish in themselves in Illinois, they take as their primary objective to secure themselves a permanent position so that they will not be rooted out like they were in Missouri, like they were in Ohio, like they were in Pennsylvania and New York. And so they do things like establish a strong city government, a city militia. They try to court cordial relations with politicians. So but it was their background in Missouri and their a truly traumatic experience for them that they're trying to avoid. And every decision they make in Nauvoo can be based on that anxiety. That's Ben Park. We're talking to him today about his new book, Kingdom of Nauvoo, The Rise and Fall of a Religious Empire on the American Frontier. And Dr. Park is an assistant professor of history at Sam Houston State University. So the Mormons arrive in Nauvoo. In their wake, really difficult experiences facing expulsion and looking for safety. One of the things that really caught my eye outset here was your depiction of this kind of tension that existed already between Missouri and Illinois as states. Latter-day Saints had just fled from a state to a new state, and those two states weren't exactly friends. No, that's a, a good way to put it. And this is one aspect that I think a lot of uh, people gloss over when they think about Nauvoo, because it was not predetermined that Illinois would welcome the Saints at first. I mean, the the church had grown a reputation by that time, and a lot of people, especially on the frontier, might not be anxious for those neighbors. But Illinois was in a rivalry with Missouri. Missouri and Illinois were two of the most populous Western states, and at that time in America, Illinois and Missouri were West. But they were two very different states. Missouri was a slave state. They believed that they represented the future of the Western frontier that was going to be part of a slaveocracy. They embraced what they call Jacksonian politics, which is local control, individual liberty, and celebrating the power of, of the white man uh, over his own destiny. Uh, conversely, Illinois, just across the Mississippi River, 
was a free state, meaning they had outlawed slavery, and they saw themselves as the alternative option to the slaveholding West. That while Missouri and others are corrupting America's principles by basing their riches on coerced labor, Illinois is going to be the more enlightened, inclusive, kind state. So this comes up to uh, later on when Joe Smith is having legal issues where he's trying to be extradited back to Missouri. Illinois is willing to stamp that down, or at least some Illinois politicians and legal professionals are, because they want to take any chance they can to strike at Missouri, their long-held foe. So Mormons had reason to be skeptical about local governments and whether they would be protective of minority rights, but they also came to be skeptical of federal power as well. What are some of the things they experienced that led to distrust or difficult relations with federal authorities? The saints were often reactive in their political principles and allegiances. They were primarily trying to find whatever method or level of power would be willing to help them. At first, they're good Jacksonians, and they believe that the state is going to help them. But once the state of Missouri betrays them, they think, well, the only way that we can find redress is the federal government. So as soon as they settle in Illinois, they come up with a number of redress petitions that they send to Washington, D.C. Was that unusual, or was that something a lot of people did? Petitions were common, but what the saints were asking was quite unique in that they were asking for the federal government to intervene in a state matter, saying that the state of Missouri, not just individuals, but the state wronged us. And they're asking the federal government to provide them redress payments, to ask Missouri to foot the bill. And of course, national politicians say, what you're offering us is crazy. That's outside of our power. You need to take your petitions to Missouri and ask Missouri to redress your wrongs. Which Latter-day Saints would say, that's crazy too, because they already gave us the boot. One of the lines that Joe Smith said is, how are we to stop a mob when the governor is the head of a mob? (laughs) Later on, the saints become even more radical in proposing for federal intervention. Starting in 1843, they ask not only for federal redress, but for federal protection, asking the federal government to make Nauvoo its own territory under federal rule outside of state sovereignty. When Joe Smith runs for president, he tries to say that the president is as power in his sphere as Jehovah is in his sphere. And that's a radical idea in Jacksonian America. But eventually, federal politicians turned their backs to the saints. And so they said, well, well, if we can't trust them, where can we turn? That's when they start turning to their more radical options. And then, of course, when the saints move out west to Utah, they say, all right, you rejected our appeals for federal intervention. So we're going to accept your state's right doctrine, make Utah state and give us our self-sovereignty like you had given Missouri and Illinois. And of course, we know that did not end up as well either. So as Mormons are trying to navigate their relationship to both local and federal governments, they start to more and more believe that they need to have power to protect themselves. And they're going to seek that in a number of different ways. They wanted stability above everything else. And so what are some of the things that they decided to do to protect themselves in the face of lack of federal oversight and hostility from state governments? Well, first and foremost, when they were driven from Missouri, they were driven by an armed mob. And so they feel we need some practical defense. And so one of the first actions the city government does when they're officially organized in early 1841 is set up a Nauvoo Legion which is going to be an armed resistance effort, technically under the auspices of the state legion. If you served in the Nauvoo Legion, you did not have to serve in the state militia. But 
In all intents and purposes, the Nauvoo Legion was in control of the city. The saints saw this as crucial. They called the Nauvoo Legion the bulwark of their liberty. That's the last line of defense. There's a long Anglo-American tradition of taking up arms to preserve your rights. To people outside of Nauvoo, this is quite scary. This is a large army, about 3,000 men, which was more than you would have found in the state militia at the time, at the uh, being led by a religious leader, whom these neighbors saw as a fanatic. And so if you see an armed sect running around with this armed militia, that can be a bit scary. So that's one thing that Nauvoo does. The other is they start interpreting laws that they feel are going to preserve their liberties in the face of legal persecution. So for instance, Missouri keeps trying to bring Joseph Smith back to their state for trial, and they get a series of extradition orders, three in fact. But By the way, I, I want to, this is such a digression, but can you give people a sense of what were they saying? Why should Joseph Smith go back? So when Joseph Smith was held in prison in Missouri, as best as I can determine, and this is a little speculation on my part. It seemed like it was mostly they're holding Joe Smith hostage in prison until all the saints were out of Missouri, and then they would release Joseph Smith, because that just seems to be how it worked out. So they just wanted to be done with the whole Mormon nonsense. And so they find once all the saints are out of Illinois, Joseph Smith escapes, likely in, in my mind, with the approval of the guards in the state, and he makes it over to Illinois. But I think Missouri regretted that decision, because now they saw Joseph Smith thriving across the state, just over the river, and they feel like they made a mistake. And that reflects poorly on them, too, because what you said is Mormon nonsense turns out to be building a very robust society. Yeah. With their neighboring rival state embracing them. Hmm. And so at the first time they try to bring Joseph back, they charged him on charges related to the Mormon-Missouri War in 1838, saying that you escaped jail before we could have the trial, so you still need to have the trial. He technically did, right? But yeah. with assistance from... Right, right. right. <laughs> with the help of the state, in a right. sense. Like exactly. the state operatives so, wanted yeah. that to be. Yeah. Exactly. And then later causes Lilburn Boggs, who was the governor of Missouri at the time of the Mormon-Missouri War, he, there is an attempted assassination on him in 1842, and lots of people believe that Joseph Smith organized it. So they tried to bring him back to Missouri for trial as an accessory to murder. Turns out that case was pretty flimsy, and the requisition order that ordered him had a number of flaws, and so he got out on that. And then after that, Missouri was still mad, and so they ordered another extradition order to bring him back on the 1838 charges. Because in each of these cases, Joseph Smith is freed not by being found innocent on the cases, but being granted a writ of habeas corpus saying that the arresting officers or the original requisition order did not follow proper protocol. And this is important because this seems like a technicality, and that would make some people really ticked off, right? right? Like they're basically right. saying habeas corpus was a legal idea that said the way you went about this right. request was not legal, so you can't do anything. And there ends up being a deep division on how they interpret that, because in Illinois and Missouri, they had laws that say that if a charge, an arrest, ends up in a habeas corpus hearing, the state is to automatically issue another arrest warrant that they follow under proper protocols, because the habeas corpus hearings have nothing to do with the uh, innocence, innocence or, guilt, or yeah. guilt. It just has to do with the arresting officers. The saints either willfully or ignorantly misunderstood that part of the habeas corpus, because they thought as soon as Joseph Smith was discharged with habeas corpus, he was found innocent on those charges. Mm -hmm. So when he was discharged with habeas corpus and Missouri comes again to try to arrest him, they say, we've already been found innocent. And so as a result, the saints, understandably to agree, 
feel like they need to take more and more radical provisions to protect Joseph Smith. So they start granting the Nauvoo Municipal Court increasingly powerful provisions to try these external cases. So their own city government gets to be an arbiter of law over and against state governments. Exactly, which goes against legal precedent because as the original Nauvoo Charter made clear, Nauvoo Municipal Court only has the power to hear habeas corpus rulings on cases that originate within Nauvoo. Mm -hmm. So it requires new proposals by the city government to grant the municipal power more more authority over cases outside Nauvoo. And to them, they think this is the only way they can preserve their liberty. They think there's no justice in an anti-Mormon court outside of Nauvoo issuing an arrest warrant for Joe Smith, returning him to Missouri, where he will be killed the moment he sets foot on Mm. on the soil. That's not justice. Democracy is supposed to promise you due cause and a trial by your own peers, and their own peers are in Nauvoo. But outside of Nauvoo, this terrifies Joe Smith's neighbors. Because they think, oh, what if he really did something? He can't be held accountable if that's the case. Latter-day Saints, it sounds like to me, are just trying to be protective of their own rights. And then the, the people, the outsiders, are also saying, well, you no one should have that much power. Right. Yeah. So at one point, one external observer says Joseph Smith now officially operates as if he were above the law. And they're increasingly frustrated because as the saints are taking these radical actions, politicians are refusing to intervene. Because the saints in their Nauvoo, with their growing population, have a strong voting base. And in a state like Illinois that's equally divided between Whig and Democrat, those Nauvoo votes can be the deciding votes in a nation. And so when Joseph Smith does these habeas corpus hearings, when he starts doing these alliances with different politicians, this is both allowed and enabled by politicians who don't want to lose the Nauvoo vote, but it angers the neighbors who feel like the saints have found a loop poll in the law. Politicians are unwilling to step in. So we're going to have to take something radical, perhaps even extra legal, to finally bring justice and restore peace in our county. Let's talk about that role of politicians, because they came to play a central role in how Latter-day Saints interacted with the state. What were the electoral circumstances? What were Latter-day Saints dealing with? In the book, we're introduced to a number of politicians taking a number of different approaches to Latter-day Saints, and the ways that Latter-day Saints, including Joseph Smith, worked with politicians ended up causing a lot of problems. Yeah, so the Saints realize that the only way that they're going to have an influence in the state politics is if they can pool their support together. Because if it's just individual Saints appealing to individual politicians, there's little work there. But if Because they might vote for different stuff. Right. But if Joe Joseph Smith can come out and say, I know that this politician is going to respect our rights and empower our Nauvoo charter. We should all vote for him. And so you, this is typically called as block voting. And the Mormons were really good at that. And they were uh, pretty outspoken about it, too. John Taylor, who is an apostle and the newspaper editor, he said, what good would it be for half of Nauvoo to disenfranchise the other half of Nauvoo? Meaning, how would Nauvoo have any power if half of Nauvoo votes one way and the other half votes the other? No, the only way that we can actually exert influence is to group together. See, this is the question I have because this caused so much outrage that Mormons were block voters. 
But everyone's a block voter. Right. Everyone votes in the block of the party or for the politician who they think will best protect their interests. So what was the difference then? It seems hypocritical, I guess. Right. And sorry to break it to you, but American history is full of these hypocritical actions. Right? <laughs> okay. But it's also to these people outside of Nauvoo, it was the religious leader dictating mm-hmm. the vote. That's where they draw the line. You can be a labor union. You can be a class. You could be a region or a city. But as soon as it's a religious leader, an ecclesiastical authority, that's crossing the line to them. And this wasn't unique to Latter-day Saints either, no. right? To maybe spend a second talking about other religious bodies that faced a similar problem yeah. because it was religion. Perhaps the religion that most prominently faced this type of opposition were the Catholics. Lots of urban communities along the East Coast have a growing Catholic population, and they vote in blocks similar to the Mormons. And this causes riots. This causes uh, forced evacuations. This causes violence. Because to them, first of all, people like the Mormons and the Catholics are already inherently suspicious. Because Because they they belong to minority faiths. Because they belong to minority faiths. They're not part of this Protestant majority. And one of the reasons they belong to minority faiths is their converts who were dissatisfied with what was happening with that Protestant majority. And so there's, on a deeper level, a lot of Americans see the Mormons as deluded fanatics who are following the whims of a religious leader. So whereas sympathetic onlookers would say, well, the Mormons in Nauvoo were just voting their interests, yeah. like any other interest group. And, and their city looks pretty cool, and yeah. things are seem to be going well there. Outsiders would say, no, these are people that are being deluded by a fanatical leader. He is hoodwinking them in a fake and false religion, and he is using that to amass political power, and he is telling them how to vote, and that is a betrayal of the American principle of the individual conscience. And they would say similar things about Catholics, but rather— Rather than a Joseph Smith prophetic figure, they would have the Pope and and, and Rome (laughs) behind that. In fact, the month before Joseph Smith is killed in Carthage jail, there is a string of major revolts in Philadelphia against Catholics to keep them from voting. And the saints, reading about this news from Nauvoo, write a series of letters to the Catholic leaders in the city and say— We sympathize with what you're doing. We are both the disenfranchised groups within American religion. Hmm. So with all the problems happening here, Joseph Smith is meeting with politicians. What are these meetings looking like? What is he looking for? And what are politicians promising? In modern America, we are well accustomed to people who identify as single-issue voters. Nauvoo was a single-issue voter on steroids. It was basically... (laughs) Are you going to protect Nauvoo's chartered powers? If so, check yes. <laughs> and in return, we will offer you several thousand votes. Which could swing the whole election. Which could swing the whole election. And so politicians are anxious for this vote because they know that you can't win a countywide election or perhaps even a statewide election, if it's close enough, without these Nauvoo votes. By the way, did they anticipate that when Nauvoo first began? No. Okay, no, this is a, you start getting inklings of this worry by 1841, 1842. So after a, they've been there for like two there's years. There's a big or... governor election in 1842. And the fact that the candidate for the Democratic Party meets with Nauvooians and Joseph Smith publishes an editorial in the church newspaper saying, we endorse this guy for the governor. So they didn't lose tax-exempt status no, after they did? No, those laws were not put in place <laughs> exactly until the 20th so. century. Yes. And this starts drawing the ire. And by the end of 1843, you have one of these, the biggest Illinois politickers. He's not a politician, but he's the guy behind a lot of these campaigns. He writes this letter to one of these aspiring politicians and says, whether it's right or not, we cannot win without the Mormon vote anymore. Mm. 
that's just a, a basis of reality for them. And that's going to cause problems for Mormons, right? The yeah. People outside of Nauvoo in Illinois aren't yeah. going to look kindly on that because then it seems like they have a disproportionate power. And Nauvoo seems to be growing at an alarming rate to people yeah. who aren't there. And Mormons are excited because they're bringing people in. It's becoming a bustling economy. There's all sorts of things happening. Outsiders are saying, "Where this thing's popping up and won't stop growing. Including thousands of people from Britain. I mean, every year they're bringing in several thousand converts from Britain. By Was the there time, concern about that being like un-American, like they're bringing over? Because yeah, we're, we're less than 100 years away from the Revolutionary War here. Yeah, and especially we're bringing in people who aren't sympathetic to the democratic process. And democratic at that time was yeah. populist, yeah. states' rights. Yeah. The, it's funny that the terms have, have right. flipped now. And suddenly Nauvoo is filled with these immigrants from Britain, part of this fanatical religion— and they are allowed to vote because there's new Illinois legislation that allows you to be able to vote in these elections. You have to be a white male and reside in the state for six months. And they could vote for state offices. Uh-huh. Yep. That's interesting that the local place could try to determine who well, is eligible no, to vote in larger elections. Legislation. Oh, so the, they would send yeah, legislators. State, Got the, it. The, no, the state legislation passed new laws that said any white male who lives in the state of Illinois for oh. six months can vote in, as And so it wasn't the Mormons that were passing no. that. It was people who said, if we pass something like this, it could be to our political yeah. advantage. Yep. The Mormons take advantage of those laws that are pace, passed by the state legislature. And the politicians are taking advantage by increasing a voting base. Meanwhile, so this is a mutual yep. exchange going on yeah, here. That's what I find so fascinating in the book is you get this cooperation, collaboration between the Mormons and the politicians, and it's the Warsaw residents and, and those surrounding Nauvoo who are critical of Mormonism who are feeling like they're being left out of this game. Mm. But then there's there's an election where this all this kind of comes to a head and blows up in Joseph Smith's face, and he says that he's going to take a step back from right. being involved. What happened there? So in 1843, it's the third extradition attempt to bring Joe Smith back to Missouri. And this one, it seemed like they finally got Joe Smith. He had had a rocky few months. He and his wife, Emma, were trying to mend over some things. So they go to visit, they go to do something that nearly everyone listening to this can probably sympathize with. They go to visit their in-laws and have a little family outing. But while they're out visiting Emma Smith's distant cousins, arresting officers from Missouri and Illinois arrive at their home in Dixon and pose as LDS missionaries. And then once they get an audience with Joseph Smith, they arrest him. And Joseph, so they're away from the Nauvoo they're Legion, away they're from away Nauvoo. from the Nauvoo courts. And they arrest Joseph, and they start marching toward Missouri, and it seems like Joseph's luck is out. Hmm. Luckily, as they're leaving, there are some aspiring politicians in that same town, including a guy by the name of Cyrus Walker, who is the Whig candidate for the congressional seat that year. May the Whig party rest in peace. That's we right. Are. <laughs> and he realizes that this might be my chance hmm. to befriend huh. the Mormon votes and, and to get this support in this contested election. So he gathers together a number of politicians and officers, and they try to just stall. So they arrest the arresting officers, the men who arrested Joseph Smith, arrest them for false imprisonment. And then so there's this big intermingled men arrested all to each other because Joe Smith remains in the arresting officers' possession. <laughs> just like a nesting doll of arrests. Like so, he's under arrest by them, and they're under arrest by them, and they're all under arrest. That's exactly right. And so they're trying to figure out what to do, and they're going to go march to a nearby district court to solve the whole matter. Meanwhile, as they march there, the Nauvoo Legion, who had been tipped off on where they are, 
intercepts the group, marches them back to Nauvoo. It's a big spectacle, parade, a band. And the police don't object to this because they're surrounded by exactly. people Exactly. They're with kind rifles of overwhelmed. And, In fact, yeah. they host a big dinner at the Smith home and place the arresting officers at the head of the table. And you have to imagine <laughs> these arresting officers are thinking, what the heck just happened? Yeah. What is going on here? And as soon as they're din- almost trolling them. Yeah. And as soon as dinner is over, the Nauvoo Municipal Court gathers and grants Joe Smith a writ of habeas corpus. Which is to say to those arresting officers, you did it wrong. Yeah. You have to let him go. Exactly. And so at that point, Cyrus Walker, who had arranged all of this, is like, cool, I just earned the Mormon vote. Mm-hmm. I have this election lockdown. Meanwhile, Thomas Ford, who's the governor of Illinois and is a Democrat, he starts regretting his actions. He feels, oh no, we might have just lost the Mormon vote. And Mormons had been voting pretty reliably Democrat. Over because the last he, hadn't a, he hadn't done anything to stop right. those arresting officers. In fact, officers. he had signed the extradition order. And to, sent uh, dis- Illinois and, authorities with those exactly. officers. And so he sends Joseph Hogue, who is the Democratic candidate for the congressional seat, running against Cyrus Walker. Joseph Hogue goes to Nauvoo and says, here's the message from the governor. You know that municipal court hearing that you did granting habeas corpus? We're going to respect that. <laughs> we're going to say, we're going to pretend like you have that authority and that's all well and good. And by the way, if you elect me for your congressional representative... We are going to expand Nauvoo's city power so that you can do that permanently. Mm. So you can always pass these habeas corpus laws when you need them. So this places Joseph Smith in a dilemma. One, you have Cyrus Walker, who he promised his vote to because he helped him get out of the mess. And two, you have Joseph Hogan, the Democratic Party, who's promising to expand Nauvoo's chartered power. So one of them helped in the past, but one of them can make a big difference going forward. Exactly. So... Joseph Smith struggles to figure out what to do here. So they, he ends up organizing a choreographed dance with Hiram Smith, the, his brother and second command of the church. And at a general conference the day before the election, Joseph Smith gets up and says, I'm voting for Cyrus Walker because I personally promised my vote. Then Hiram Smith gets up and says, I've had a revelation that the Latter-day Saints should vote for Hogue. And then Joe Smith gets back up and says, well, you know, I'm voting for Walker because I have a personal relationship with him. But I'll tell you this. Hiram has never had a revelation and it turned out to be wrong. <laughs> and so the saints all vote. Did they all see the charade too? I mean, oh, yeah. this was, yeah. Everyone was pretty clear. And they voted according to one nearby newspaper account, Nauvoo votes for Hogue by nearly 1,100 votes to 90. Mm-hmm. And so they got the message and Hogue wins the election based on this. Did they look into whether Joseph Smith voted 90 times or did they, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding? <laughs> Um, and But by this point, this was a turning point because the Whigs, as you might imagine, feel betrayed. And the Democrats felt that even though they came out on top of on this situation, they recognized that this vote might be too malleable and they can't fully rely on it. So and they that, can't keep making bargains like right. that. And so the Saints no longer have these strong political connections. And that's when they start looking to the federal government for help. And these are connections that they wanted to protect their own community too. So this is the essence of a tragedy or these competing desires and needs, imbalances of power. And one of the things the book helped me do as a reader is to see the other side of the coin and to see how politics of the situation happening in a context where American democracy itself wasn't well established led to basically the course of events as it ended up They're all trying to figure things out. 
Yeah. The Saints are certainly throwing wet spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks. But guess what? So were most Americans at the time. That's what it was. They're, I mean, we're just coming out after a decade of things called like the corrupt bargain between political parties to put one person in president over another. And so these type of flimsy alliances and backroom agreements. That's just how American politics worked at the time. But with Mormonism, throwing religion into the mix, that was the bridge too far. So let's talk about that, because the idea of freedom of religion or religious liberty and American democracy today, a lot of people think of those things as being hand in hand from the beginning. In fact, one story has it that America as a nation began in part to ensure a place of religious liberty. Historians paint a more complicated picture. So let's take a, a little time here to situate American religious liberty in the context of American democracy and how Latter-day Saints fit into that, complicating that picture a lot. Alexis de Tocqueville, the great French aristocratic philosopher and traveler who came to America in the 1830s and then wrote a great book, Democracy in America, that's become a classic since then. He once said that the place of religion in democracy remains the grandest mystery for America to solve. How do we police religious groups in America that supposedly places all denominations equal? Now, we take that for granted now. We think that religious liberty is one of the great hallmarks of, of America. But back then, it was still a scary topic because if you're granting all religions liberty, most people assume that as soon as you did that, all the crazy religions are going to die. That was one reason why Thomas Jefferson was in favor of religious liberty. because Marketplace of ideas. Marketplace of ideas, the disinfectant of sunlight, that as soon as everything's out in the open, only the rational religions, rational actors are going to survive. That stabilized society. That stabilized yeah. society. But what people saw with the Mormons are, oh my gosh, if we give religious liberty to fanatics? Yeah, they believe in weird angels They believe in weird angels, added yeah. scriptures, prophetic leaders, priesthood authority. Yeah. Those are people that are not equipped to act in a democracy. A democracy is dependent on that idea of rational actors working together and balancing interests. And these religious groups like the Mormons, they're dangerous. And now that the government is out of the game, what's left to police them? Mm -hmm. Well, that has to be the private groups. And that comes down to mobs, right? We have to be able to police the voice of the people as the voice of God, even if it's outside of legal spheres. And Latter-day Saints themselves were making appeals based on religious liberty. So what were their arguments in the face of what seems to be kind of mob rule, like the most voices wins? Right. They would say that that system breaks down because it does not protect the rights of these minority groups. If you are not in the majority opinion, there is no way for you to secure your rights. Tocqueville saw this as well. He called this the tyranny of the majority. That in America, Tocqueville said, it's not going to be the, the rule of law that's most powerful. It's going to be majority opinion. And so the solution the saints offered, at least in the later parts of Nauvoo, is the federal government needs to get involved. We need a dispassionate umpire, someone who's not mixed up in the fray of these state and local affairs to stop in and protect the rights of minority groups. These are arguments that are very rare in 1830s, 1840s America, but increasingly become more common the next decade, especially over issues of slavery. Because when slavery becomes a sectional issue where the southern states have slave rights and in the north, slavery is abolished, you have lots of people saying the federal government needs to be able to be strong enough 
to intervene and protect the rights of all humans. And that idea finally becomes codified in law following the Civil War in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, where it finally says that, you know what? Protecting those rights inherent in the Bill of Rights, that's not a state issue. That's a federal issue. And what's shocking is you find the saints making very similar arguments here in Nauvoo. That's Benjamin E. Park. He's assistant professor of history at Sam Houston State University. We're talking about his new book, Kingdom of Nauvoo, The Rise and Fall of Religious Empire. And as I said earlier, uh, we, we had him on the podcast talking about his previous book, American Nationalisms, Imagining Union in the Age of Revolutions. All right, so let's go back to Joseph Smith after that contested election where he declared his support for one candidate and the church declared its support for another candidate. Joseph emerges from that chastened. What happens to him and what commitments does he make at that time that don't end up panning out? So immediately after that debate, he basically comes out and says, I am not getting involved in politics anymore. Now, I don't know how fully he believed in that or else it, or it might have just been public rhetoric, but he definitely felt like things might have went a bit too far because they recognize that their bridges are burned within the state. And so they like with both parties, with both parties. And so we're going to have to look to the federal level. Mm-hmm. And of course, the most obvious place at the federal level is the White House and the president, because they're coming up on an election year. And the 1844 election is going to be one of the most contested elections in American history because there is no clear front runner. There are five people considered as possible frontrunners that fall. And by the way, to show you how contested it is, none of those five frontrunners end up winning the nomination, mm. winning the election the next year. But Joseph Smith and the Saints, they send letters to all of those five presidential figures that fall and say, if you are elected, what will you do to help the Mormons? Because we could swing Illinois for you. Yeah, because we, we can be a reliable voting base for you. And of those five candidates, only three write back. Of those three who write back, none of them pledge support, including John C. Calhoun, known as the state's right doctrine father in America, and Henry Clay, known as the Grand Compromiser. Each of them say that this is outside of the authority of the federal government to get involved. How do you evaluate those responses as a historian? Was that opportunism? Were they reading the tea leaves or were they looking at American legal tradition and making a call that way. I think the latter. The arguments the saints were making for federal intervention, it was unheard of in those times. Mm-hmm. Maybe a few decades ago during John Quincy Adams when they had a more national system of political belonging. Is this in part because like slaves, African Americans, Native Americans didn't even have a place to stand to make those kind of right. clauses? In other words, right. is this in part because Nauvoo was predominantly white? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good way to see it. These are saints who believe that we have rights yeah. as citizens that might be deprived of on African Americans and indigenous people. But hey, we're white Americans. We have these rights. Our state is not giving us it. We want the federal government to. And the federal government, Henry Clay, known as the Grand Compromiser, he says, look, I don't want to go into the White House having any entanglements. Right? He's, I, I won't he's, tell you right now. He is a classic Whig politician who wants to be above the fray on, I don't mm. want any of these backroom dealings. But he did write back to them, though. He did write back, which kind of shows the growing respect that Joseph Smith has in the nation, or at least this uh, this acknowledgement that the Mormons are a voice to be reckoned with. Why do you think the others didn't write back? Uh, probably because they're getting lots of mail and they might be just <laughs> seeing the Mormons as, as not someone worth engaging. They're, and they're on the edge of the country. Right, they're out exactly. there. Yeah. 
And then when they get these responses back and they're like, well, what are we going to do? And in this meeting in the red brick store, some of Joe Smith's close advisors say, well, you know what? If no one else is going to respect our interests, we will. And so they nominate Joseph Smith for president. He runs on a very uh, interesting campaign with promises of expanding the federal power, a gradual emancipation of slavery, the annexation of Texas, sailors' rights, because why not? I don't even know what those are. (laughs) Debtors' freedom. Um, and I don't think he... Do I have sailors right? <laughs> we all have sailors. Okay. Google it, guys. We don't have time. And I'm not sure Joe Smith was ever convinced he had a real shot at the presidency. I mean, this he, could be like a protest campaign yeah, he kind had of a bold thing. bold ambitions, but I see it mostly as a chance for them to get their voice out. But they put in a lot of energy. They sent out hundreds of electioneering missionaries. They were ready for this because they had already been sending missionaries exactly. and had experience with this. They set up a printing press in, in New York to publish a newspaper devoted to electing Joseph Smith. They established state electing conventions in every state throughout the union. They're going to have a national convention where Joe Smith was going to be nominated for their ticket. Could you tell whether they really thought he had a shot, though? So it seems like what you show in the book and what you say just now is that they really went through the process of making this, trying to make this a legitimate campaign by doing all of those things. Yeah, I think at this point, it's a matter of, it would be crazy and a miracle to happen, but stranger things have happened, Mm -hmm. right? America is a very divided land. I mean, they are coming in Nauvoo where they're used to adoring everything Joseph Smith says. Mm -hmm. So there's a degree to where they're like, well, if we just present Joseph Smith's message and introduce him to the broader nation, people will like you. They're going to feel the same way we do. And Joseph Smith has a few statements in Nauvoo where he's like, when I read the Eastern press and what they're saying, I fear (laughs) I might actually get elected. (laughs) And it's ah, it's so funny because it's still hard to tell, even now that we have access to so many of his personal writings, it's still hard to tell how much he ever believed that was possible. I think we'll never know for sure, but at the very least we know that he saw this as a great opportunity to get their message out. Right. So the presidential candidacy is off. In the next chapter of your book, you outline how Mormons are going to take a much more radical step than running a presidential candidate. They're going to come to believe that it's time to start a fresh government in general. But one thing that surprised me is before that, they did petition the federal government to become their own territory. Yeah. I don't think I'd seen that before. Yeah, I'm sure somebody's written on it. They were, they were petitioning to be a territory very similar to Native American reservations. Yeah. Because just like we take these Native reservations outside of state control because we don't trust the state actors and judicious governing, we should do the same with Nauvoo. Because at this point, the saints are like, we don't trust Illinois politicians working with us anymore. We want the federal government to get involved. And so we'll be like a reservation. Right, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, but that doesn't happen. And so there's this much more radical step. Let's talk about this. This is where the Council of 50 comes in. So how do you describe that effort? So Joseph Smith gets word in March of 1844 that there might be some potential settlement options outside of American borders, Texas, California, Oregon, that are really interesting to them. He always wants to remain in Nauvoo, but he thinks maybe we should have some contingency plans or maybe some outlying settlements. And so he decides, all right, we need to have a new council to come together to kind of organize this future because everything seems to be falling apart around us. Maybe it's time to restore God's law. So they organize a group that comes to be known as as the Council of 50, although it had a much larger and convoluted uh, name that starts with the kingdom of God and his laws. And this Council of 50 was very explicitly set out to establish, in their words, a theocracy. 
on the frontier. They used the word theocracy. They, they used the word theocracy. Which is God's government. Yeah, because they believed that democracy and human rule had only resulted in chaos, in anarchy, in division, in the chaotic world around us. The only way that's going to bring stability and redemption is divine law. And so they create this, this secret council that does a few things. One, it, it, it explores potential settlement options. Two, it's going to govern Joseph Smith's presidential campaign. And three, it's going to put in place a global theocratic system that would finally return God's rule. Now, this is very millenarian. I'm not sure they ever thought that this would actually take a ruling position until the millennium. They thought the in. end times would come. Right. And yeah. It's going to need a constitution, so they come up with the first draft of at least part of a new constitution that they believe is going to replace the American constitution. And in general, what's fascinating with this Council of 50 is it's an unmatched access into the political debates of lots of people in Nauvoo. And it's just a, a phenomenally fascinating record to read. And you get to see a lot of that and discussion of it in the book, Kingdom of Nauvoo. Were there any other parallels to what Latter-day Saints were doing? Were there any other utopian sort of yeah. millennial attempts to establish a complete new government? Or was, was this just a complete outlier? We might be tempted to think it's an outlier, but as a historian of religion and politics, what strikes me is a lot of the cultural symmetries between the Council of 50 and what's going on elsewhere. You have lots of people saying that the American government system is failing, and we need to find some way to return it to a past glory. And an increasing number of people think that the way to do that is to insert God's voice. So, for instance, the Grimke sisters, two women who are outspoken women's suffrage and abolitionist activists out on the East Coast, they make arguments for women's suffrage saying that God has given women's rights and America is taking those away from them. So we need to revise the American Constitution to insert God's law. Hmm. The next decade, you have lots of abolitionists like John Brown, who leads the raid on Harper's Ferry. And John Brown, before he leads that raid, he writes a provisional constitution for the new nation that's going to replace what he believes is to be a corrupt and failed American constitution. And this constitution is based on divine laws. The Confederate States of America, when they secede from the U.S. and they write their own constitution, the very first line says, this constitution is based on the laws of providence. So, yes, the Mormon Council of 50 is very radical in the extent to where they take it, but it's tapping into a broader symmetry of the only way to restore order in this nation is to restore God's voice. And the next chapter of the book takes readers through the last days of Joseph Smith's life at Nauvoo before he's killed. And a lot of listeners are probably familiar with the basic outlines of that. Since we're short on time, was there anything in your research that you came up with for this book that surprised you in covering that part of the story? You know, when I started writing that last chapter, I was hoping to be a bit different than a lot of books on Nauvoo that kind of have a chapter toward the end that builds all the way to the end of Joseph Smith's death and then the last line is he's shot and he falls from Carthage jail. And like, I want to do something different. I want to kick things off with Joseph Smith's death at the beginning of the chapter and then deal with the aftermath. Yeah, you want to begin with that in part because that's how the people experienced right. it as well. The story continued. And then what struck me, though— was how much stuff happens in those three months before Joseph Smith's death. And that reaffirms to me the principle of historical contingency, meaning that history could have taken many different directions at any of these moments. If Joseph Smith would have decided to react differently at certain moments, if some people would have decided to take uh, a different response, if the city council would have decided to vote against Joseph Smith and not destroy the Nauvoo Expositor. I was even struck on the day that the Nauvoo Expositor was published, one of the people involved
involved in the Nauvoo Expositor goes to privately meet with Joseph Smith. Hmm. Joseph Smith later assumes that there were nefarious purposes for that visit. But I'm pretty sure that this individual was having regrets Hmm. and he's wishing maybe we should try to smooth things over a bit more. So at every moment in this tragic tale, and and it is a tragic tale, there could have been other decisions made. And I think that's that's a good lesson to remember that history is not written in stone. It's made by actors and it's shaped by decisions. There's one question that I wanted to ask based on a review of the book in the Wall Street Journal where there's a journalist who's written on Mormonism and he points out that when Joseph Smith is shot, it's fairly well known that he's said to have given a cry of distress, the Masonic cry of distress or a prayer, depending on who you ask, where he said, oh Lord, my God, as he fell out the window. And, and you omit that from your text and from footnotes. It's, it's just not there. Maybe talk about that decision. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up. To me, I was raised hearing that story. It's found in Richard Bushman's Rough Stone Rolling. But when I actually started investigating it, there's some evidence that he might have said it. I mean, the only thing we know is that he shouts, oh, Lord, my God, when he's being shot, which seems to be a normal type of thing for a religious leader to say when they're about to be shot. But account to say that that was just the first part of the Masonic sign of distress, which he meant to say to in order to call for help from the Masons in the room. Or condemn them by saying, like, you them. didn't help me. Yeah. Right. That's a very late reminiscence. I don't find it a very reliable source. And so I think that highlights a question about history. How do you approach these sources? What do you find is viable? And people with good intentions and good scholarship background can come to different conclusions. I concluded that I couldn't trust that source. The reviewer concluded that that's a (laughs) crucial source to understand. And that just shows how there can be that history is not straightforward, but instead there has to be some interpretive work done. And I think it speaks to the uses that people can make of the story of Joseph Smith's martyrdom of the saints at Nauvoo, that there are different takeaways and different things that are going to be emphasized. That's why at, at the outset, I refer to it as the archaeology of, of the history of Nauvoo here, where if you dig down to these layers, you're going to find some different things right. uh, and see people making arguments for different reasons. And it's, it's complicated. This is why history is fun. This is why. Indeed. Yeah. So before we go here, we've touched on this next question, the final question here. We've kind of touched on this throughout the interview in general, but I wanted to boil it down here at the very end. So as you conclude your book, here's a quote from you. You say, the question Mormons posed to the nation was not just about the boundaries of religious liberty. It concerned the limits of American democracy. Democracy was envisioned to manage different interests and grant individual freedoms. But with the Mormons... The process broke down. That's the quote. So I ask you, what do you see are the ongoing limits of American democracy that this story can highlight for people today? I think it should make us aware of who are the groups, who are the people, who are the interests that sometimes are shouted down by a majoritarian culture. Who are those? Because democracy is a practice of majority rule that can be quite oppressive. If you have three people two of them can vote to enslave the third person, and that would be at its root, democracy. Now, we believe in a better democracy. We believe in a reciprocal democracy that everyone has equal rights and an equal voice. But that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of sympathy. It takes a lot of trying to understand people who have very different interests than yours. And I think in periods of deeply divided and partisan cultures, it's daring, it's difficult, but in the end, it's worthwhile to try to understand 
who are the voices that are not being listened to? And how can we do better to invite them to the table and make sure their interests are listened to? I think that's the legacy of Nauvoo. Even if we would not replicate their actions that they took, we don't want to create another Council of 50, I don't think, or at least I haven't gotten that memo yet. You haven't been invited to it. Uh, I figured I'm always out of the cool group. Yeah. (laughs) But we should sympathize with their concerns because this, at its core, is a story of religious refugees who are not able to secure their rights and protections and are doing all they can to get a seat at the table. And when that was denied to them, they have to take justice in their own hands, which only prompts people to take justice against them in their own hands. And that's a vicious and violent cycle that's better to be avoided. Yeah, I think that's the ultimate irony of this book is you had Latter-day Saints taking extrajudicial measures to protect their rights— And in response, you had people trying to protect their rights and liberties by taking extrajudicial measures. In the end, both sides believed that the democratic system was too flimsy, too malleable, too slow, too encumbered to ever bring about uh, justice. And that's because in the end, they were not able to see others' perspectives. Hmm. That's Benjamin E. Park. He's assistant professor of history at Sam Houston State University and author of the new book, Kingdom of Nauvoo, The Rise and Fall of a Religious Empire on the American Frontier. And again, you might remember him from a previous episode where we interviewed him about American nationalisms, imagining union in the age of revolutions. And he's also the co-editor of the Mormon Studies Review, which used to be here at the Maxwell Institute and is now over at the University of Illinois Press. And you've done a lot of writing in a lot of different places, too, Ben. You've been busy. Washington Post, Newsweek, Houston Chronicle, Salt Lake Tribune. I haven't seen you yet in the Children's Friend, however. That's my dream. Maybe someday. (laughs) What are you working on now before you go? I'm finishing up an edited collection on American religious history that brings together 30 authors writing about different moments that show how central religion is to American history with the hopes of it being adopted in classrooms. Mm, Good. And people, uh, again, by the time this interview comes out, uh, you'll have been on a number of other podcasts. You're doing a lot of media appearances. You're doing a lot of public speaking. People can check out the guest lecture that you gave today. That will already be up uh, that you delivered here at Brigham Young University. So people that are interested in learning more about Nauvoo can check out the book, and they can check out all of the things, Ben, that you've been doing in promoting the book and getting the word out. So I just wanted to thank you for coming in. It's fun to do interviews with you because we're friends. I try not to let that interfere too much. It's actually kind of hard. Well, you know, it's a pleasure to be here, Blair. You are uh, the king of the crop among podcasters. (laughs) Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Maxwell Institute podcast. I'm still putting episodes together here at home in Salt Lake City, staying safe and distanced as COVID-19 continues to disrupt life all around the globe. I hope you're staying safe and healthy. Let's see here. Have I read the podcast review from Paul the Monk? I can't remember if I did that one yet. I think the name probably would have stuck in my memory, though, because I don't know how many monks are out there listening. So we have Paul the Monk, and this review says, The Maxwell Institute podcast is very informative, and the subjects are relevant and timely to me. I find that it helps me develop a more informed understanding of so many faith topics. It expands my perspective to include so much of what is good and wholesome. This fills me with hope in times of division and discord. Thank you for your devotion and commitment to excellence in podcasting. Thank you for that, Paul the Monk. I'm glad to know you're enjoying the show and you find it wholesome. That's great. And I hope to see some more reviews coming soon. And we'll talk to you next time on the Maxwell Institute podcast.